All right, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Drew's Virtual Happy Hour, uh, the happy hour that's designed to help us escape the uh, current pandemic situation that's engulfed all of our lives. Uh, we're here to have a little bit of fun, hopefully learn some uh, cool new stuff, and of course have really, really fun and amazing guests. And tonight is no exception at all, and quite possibly the most legendary guest that has graced um, Drew's Virtual Happy Hour. He is a third-generation master distiller. He's got a Medal of Merit in Agriculture Engineering. He's responsible for such fun brands that we've already seen here uh, as like El Tesoro, Tapatio, Tequila Ocho, just to name a few. Um, and uh, my guest tonight is Carlos Camarina. Carlos, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you, Drew, for inviting me to have this a little conversation to be part of this virtual happy hour. Uh, I see some familiar faces here, so uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, there will be very good questions, but also let's try to to have some fun and, and, oh. and, and enjoy this hour. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, our, our mutual friend Robert Gonzalez wanted me to correct it and say fifth generation, but the way that I read it was fifth generation uh, Tilacero, but third generation distiller because you know you guys started off growing agave right before you started distilling it. So it seems like a tomato tomato thing, but you know, I want to make sure we bring that up. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually fifth generation agave grower and tequila producer, but as the first two generations were kind of a moonshine, they were not that legal at that time. There was no brand name, they were not paying taxes uh, and all that. So officially, I am third generation master distiller, even if the background in my family is five generations producing right. tequila and growing, growing agaves. And see, that's what this is all about, getting our facts straight. Um, that's been the whole goal. So that's for you, Robert. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, so you, you just mentioned it. You've been, you know, you've been around this for multiple generations. And I just have to ask, was there any point where you're like, I don't want to go into this business. I want to do something else. Or was it agave or bust? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it ever crossed my mind. But also, let me tell you that it didn't cross my mind to be the master distiller. Actually, my, my father was producing tequila. I am an agronomist. I studied agriculture because uh, since I was a kid, and when I was not in school, my father used to send me to work in the fields with the rest of the labor people, and then I will get paid because uh, there was no weekly allowance for me when I was not in school. So I had to earn my own money, and and I kind of got in love with with the uh, with the agaves and 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 with agriculture itself, and and I decided to study agronomy. So my imagination when I went to college it was that my father would live forever and he would keep on producing his tequila. And my goal, it was to grow the agave for him. So that was kind of the, the, the goal, not exactly on tequila production and, and, and running a company. That was not, not my vision. Uh, I mean, being very honest, I used to say that uh, I was very familiar with, it, that, with tequila at that time. Right. And I was kind of like a, a popular kid in high school, but it was because I had free access to tequila. So if there was a party, if, they, if, my, if my friends want, wanted to drink some tequila, I would be the one to provide it. So that's 
how familiar I was with tequila. I was a, I was a good consumer. I was consuming my part, but I was not that much involved in tequila production because again, instead of, of going in, in, in vacation to work at the distillery, I was sent to work in the fields. So therefore, I, I was more uh, towards that direction and that is why I decided to, to study agriculture. So again, it was not anything else. I mean, not that I thought that I would do something else, but at the same time, I thought that I would be just on the agave side of the business, not on the tequila production and of course, not in the accounting and, and, and dealing with laws and paperwork and, and all of that paraphernalia. No, that was not exactly what I wanted. <laughs> Still nowadays, uh, if I get stressed at the office with the work that I have there, my decompressed part is, is jump into the truck and go and make a tour around the agave fields. And that to me, it is my relaxation therapy. It is just go with the agaves and, and that's it. So again, being there, I don't get stressed. Being at the office, I get stressed. Right, right. And when you were going through that education, you know, at that, at that time, like was it, was it heavily on education centered around agave or was it more of like a general agricultural study? I mean, what were some of the things that translated and what were some of the newer things that you discovered through school? No, actually, I would say it was general agriculture. And, and uh, actually, I studied agriculture not even in this area, not in Jalisco. Uh, I went to uh, Mexico City to study uh, agriculture in a university uh, by the city. Uh, so uh, they were not familiar with agave, actually. So there was nothing related to agave. So in the, it, it was, to me, that was kind of, the again, the, the scientific base on agriculture and from there, I decided to use it uh, mostly in, in agave. Right. Um, and then, you know, so, so part of your guys' is like multi-generational is, is working with different types of agave. And I read one interview where they asked you about the CRT and the changes that were made and stuff like that to the production. And your response was, well, before, we were working with five different types of agave and then now we're down to one, but that did, but in terms of production, it didn't change. Like we've been doing the same thing and we're going to continue to do the same thing. And now with the emergence of Ricea, you know, at least to the American market, and then also the, you know, the emergence of um, agave distillados, is there any part of you that's curious or that maybe would want to work with some different agave outside of Blue Weber at this point? Well, uh, as I think I said in that interview, and, and it's, it happened that, that uh, in tequila, as you already mentioned, we were able to use up to six different species, all of them native from Jalisco, from this area. Uh, the reason why eventually it was, it was decided to use only the blue agave, I have to say that it was uh, uh, thanks, if you can say thanks, uh, to Mr. Um, Francisco Javier Sousa. He's the one that actually was saying that we should uh, kind of restrict ourselves to use the blue agave only because it was the agave that would, that would reach maturity the faster and it would be the one that would yield the most sugar content. So why waste time using those? And eventually it became a law. But uh, 
but again, even, even on, on the Blue Weber, I mean, if we are so specific as saying Agave Tequilana Weber Blue Variety, if we are that specific as speaking of a variety, blue variety, it means that there's more varieties, right? Right. Yes. Yep. When I was a kid, we used to use the, what we call the Agave Blanco, the white variety of Agave Tequilana Weber, also classified as Agave Pseudo Tequilana by another gentleman that was not Weber, was Trell. So it, it has these two uh, scientific names. It was the Agave Tequilana Weber white variety or the Agave Pseudo Tequilana, according to this other definition. That usually takes uh, three or four more years to grow and mature. It will have less sugar, but also the piñas can weigh uh, in between 250 and 300 kilograms. So they can weigh, uh, what is that in terms of, uh, of uh, pounds? Uh, I'm not even sure. Eight I'm not sure either. I'm pounds. not good on those things. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say but bigger. They're big. Way bigger, uh, but, but again, it took more time. But we used to use the Bermejo, the Siwin, the Saguayo, Pata de Mula, Blanco, uh, Chato, Cenizo, and Blue. And, and we had the Blue, and Azul, and then we had another one that was Azulillo. So another kind of bluish, but it was different. So uh, there was no so, so much restriction. So it was in the, uh, probably in the 19, at the end of the 1940s, where eventually... Uh, the blue was the one to select. So what I feel nowadays is that, that we kind of lost an opportunity of, again, being using other varieties, same as they are doing in mezcal, by using different species, different varieties, you find in the market way more options for the consumer. Right. And we had different flavor profiles and different options at that time, which unfortunately by law now we cannot use. So we are, again, uh, restricted to just one variety of one species. So if eventually we could go back, yes, I would be thrilled. And that is exactly what uh, Caballito Serrero did. Right. He decided to go, or they decided to go out of being tequila regulated and they decided to be an agave spirit. So they could go back to use some of those other species of agave that were part of tequila history in the first half of last century. Yeah, yeah, and that um, I, I was fortunate enough to tour that distillery, and it's it's like going in a time machine that also has like this modern equipment, and it. it's really kind of a trip. Um, so, uh, so a couple of things to catch up with in the notes. Uh, John Welch always coming up clutch. Uh, the conversion is five hundred to seven hundred pounds. So that that's a that's a big agape. Um, <laughs> And then uh, actually he has a really great question here. And maybe this is something that I can, I can throw out to Javier Jr. over at uh, Caballito. But he was wondering like what a tequila ensemble would be like. Um, I know that La Luna does one out of Michoacan. They do a tequiliana and um, uh, uh, Cuprieta one. But in... In the Jalisco region, and if you if you can recall, I mean, do you remember the different types of flavors that each one of those agaves that you listed off would give? Was it were they was there a wide variety? Because you know they're coming from a similar area, and you've talked about terroir and, and your production and stuff like that. But obviously, if it's in the ground for four five more years and sometimes longer, do you remember any of those taste profiles or anything like that? 
Uh, I'm very sorry to disappoint you, but I am not that old. I mean, well, I, I, know, I just that old, but I am not that old. <laughs> I'm talking that they were used in the 1940s, 1950s. No, I was not even born at that time. So I was born and raised with blue agave, tequilana, however, and none of the other varieties or the other species. And therefore, I'm not familiar with what those uh, flavor profiles were. Yeah. I just know by history and what my father used to tell me about how they used to use these other totally. uh, species or varieties, but that's as far as I can go. I, I, I am not that old. Yeah, no, that's not what I meant, but I appreciate you having fun with that. Um, do you, I mean, and so I know you're talking about like if they change the rules, you know, you could be open to it, but you know, again, because there are people like, you know, the, the Caballito group that, they're doing that already. I mean, do you, do you ever foresee yourself doing a one-off, even if it's just like a distillery exclusive, just to see what, what it tastes like? I mean, do you have access to any agave that's not Blue Weber? You cannot do it just because or for a little time and then come back or something because the, the regulations on tequila are very specific. Okay. If, you are, if you have a distillery that you are distilling tequila, by law, you cannot distill anything else. You need to build another distillery. And from, the, uh, from what we are already producing, it would be take kind of like a, a, a huge step as Caballito Serrero did, that it is just leave the norma and therefore not being able to use the word tequila ever again. Okay. Or at least not with that distillery. So it would be very difficult. I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm kind of tempted. I wish I had the time and the, and the money and all that to kind of build a little side distillery with a little something just to 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 have fun not as yeah. a business to see what happens if you use some other species and therefore uh, as i was telling you i'm in love with the agaves and not only the blue all kinds of agaves so here at, at your home in the ranch i i even have a, a kind of a small collection of as many varieties and species as i can get and and i have to even confess to you that sometimes i break the law especially when I go to the U.S. and I'm in Arizona or I'm in, in California or in Texas and eventually I see some agave that doesn't look that familiar to me. Well, I'm kind of trying to collect some mijuelo and then I bring it in back to Mexico illegally within my dirty laundry so I can sneak them in in order for me to grow them in my backyard. Uh, and therefore, just just by, by seeing at my backyard and year after year, I have a lot of, of I mean, di from different uh, agave species, I have plants reaching maturity and I just allow them to grow the quiote, to flower, to seed, to all of that. And sometimes I'm, I'm even salivating saying, damn, what I could do with this little <laughs> agave piña if I was able to use it, which I am not. But sometimes right. I'm kind of craving for, damn, what yeah. is in there that I cannot even witness? What kind of flavors, aromas, what profile I could get out of those? And I cannot bring any of those to the distillery because the moment one of those piñas gets into the distillery and the CRT notice, I will be completely shut down and I will get a lot of penalties and fines. Uh, therefore, I don't even dare. I, yeah. I just wish I could. Yeah, totally understandable. And. I'm pretty sure everybody on this call doesn't want you to lose any steam or momentum at this point. So, you know, we'll live in the fantasy world and, you know, we'll let, um, you know, we'll let everybody else do, do the other projects. 
Um, so in another interview back in 2018, and actually it might have been a, a Facebook post, but you're talking about the agave crisis and how there's really no answers. We, we might not be out of trouble until 2022. Um, and you predicted a disappearance of brands and different distilleries. Um, about halfway to that prediction now, I mean, how do you feel about agave pricing and um, just uh, in general where, where we're headed in terms of agave availability and pricing? Well, I could say the whole history of tequila, at least for the last 120 years, uh, it is very predictable. We have been always having cycles. There's a few years that there's an agave shortage, the price goes to the clouds, and then the people get excited, even people that never had an agave plant in their life, but they have a few square feet garden, they will plant an agave right there thinking, hey baby, someday you will grow up and you will make me rich because look at what my neighbor is making and look at my compadre, my cousin, everybody gets excited. Everybody plants too much agave. Few years after that, all of that agave that was planted basically at the same time will reach maturity. And then surprise, there is more agave than what the industry can process. The price comes crashing down. The people get disappointed. They stop planting agave seven, eight more years, and then you have, surprise, another shortage. This has been happening always. That is one of the reasons, again, why my grandfather decided to build La Tenia. Because my, my great-great-grandfather had a distillery, again, that, was, that got abandoned and got destroyed during Mexican Revolution in the 1910s, and then uh, the Cristeros War in central Mexico in the 1920s. Uh, but still, my grandfather was, was uh, growing agave, and he had contracts to supply some distilleries in Tequila Valley. And then in one of those cycles, there was more agave than what the industry needed or wanted. And they were, even with the contract, they refused to buy any agave from my grandfather. So uh, my grandfather's dilemma, it was uh, if, if he uh, kind of let the agave in the fields, it was rotten and he would lose all of his investment in agaves. So the only way that he could preserve his agave, it was turning that agave into tequila. And the reason why there's so many distilleries now, it comes because in the last, again, in the, uh, a few years ago, there was so much agave, the price was in the, in, in, in the ground. Uh, and a lot of people, the only choice they had, it was to start with a new distillery or to look for someone that would build uh, or, or make their brand or make tequila and bold for them and all of that. So everything is always related to the, to the agave cycles. So, Again, as the agave is very expensive right now because the big shortage that, that we are having, the people is planting agave as crazy. Just to give you some numbers, uh, 2017 were planted about 125 million agaves. 2018, 153. Last year, 192 million agaves. And for this year, the number will be around 220 million agaves. Well, the industry last year used and needed 60 million agaves. So you are planting 200 million and you need only 60. There's no surprise to know what's gonna happen in five more years or six more years. There will be agave rotting in the fields. There will be, the price will be in the ground. There will be a lot of people losing money and the people will get disappointed again and they will say, I don't want to hear about this damn plant again in my life. 
and I can anticipate you in, in around 15 years from now, there will be another agave crisis, another shortage, because exactly the same has been happening for over 120 years. That was my thesis in college. It was market study of the agave. And the cycles were so clear over and over and over and over again that that is not surprising for me. What it is really surprising is that if this has been happening for over 100 years, and we say that we human beings are the most intelligent species on the animal kingdom, and I see these things happening, and sometimes I even doubt it. I think, are we really that, that intelligent? We keep on repeating the same mistake over and over and over again, thinking that this time the result will be different. Well, let me tell you something. If you keep on doing the same, the result will be the same. And yeah. there's no more change. That is why I can anticipate what is going to happen. Yes, we are at the top of the, of, the, of the mountain right now with the agave shortage. And then we will come downhill all the way to the bottom of the, of the not only the hill or the mountain, actually the bottom of the cliff, all the way down. Just part of the process. Part of the process. Has been happening for over 100 years and it will be no different this time. Yeah. And then one of the one of the newer trends um, and something that you're in, you're involved with is is actually um, trying to rebuild like bat populations in in Mexico and letting letting agave you know come to spring its coyote to flower and to actually have something you know for the bats to survive on. How how do you feel that project is going? I mean, do you think it's going to continue to grow and more places are going to adopt it, or how do you feel about it at this point? Yes, uh, I mean, we started this project and, and well, the reason for this project, let me begin with, it is because with, uh, the agave reproduces in, in, in mostly three different ways. I could add a fourth different way, but, but only one is sexual, which is producing flowers and seeds. And that happens only after the agave reaches maturity, the agave during all of its life is accumulating energy, sugar for that single event of growing a kyote, producing flowers and seeds. And if you allow that to happen, surprise, your piña has no residual sugar for you to make tequila. So the, the common practice, it was always when the, when the kyote, when the, 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 the stalk is sprouting, you cut it because you don't want this to, to consume all of your sugar. And then you, you use that piña for making tequila. Fortunately, the agave reproduces also non-sexually. One of those ways is through the root, it will spread out uh, through the rhizomes and in the root, it will spread out a plant which is genetically identical. It is a clone. And you don't need to wait for, that, for the agave to reach maturity after between two and three years of planting a brand new plant, you will have already hijuelos with enough size and quality to separate them from the mother and use them in another field. So that is the common way of, 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 uh, of uh, reproducing agaves. Results, a hundred and something years doing the same. Well, now all of the blue agave in Mexico or most of the blue agave in Mexico are clones. They have the same genetic information and that is dangerous. If eventually we have a coronavirus or another type of virus, affecting the agave, it could wipe out the whole population of agave and there would be no more tequila because there's no natural resistance and having exactly the same genetic information, if one plant is susceptible, 
all of the others are susceptible the same. So the idea with the bug-friendly project is to allow the small percentage of agaves reaching maturity to actually flower and seed so they can have a cross-pollination and we can produce seeds. Now, what is the effect if, uh, and by the way, being a succulent, this kind of plant during the day is dormant. It's not breathing, it's not transpiring, it's not doing any of its living functions. Those functions are made at night. So even when the plant is flowering during the day, the flowers are shut down and the flowers are not producing nectar. At night, the flowers open up and at, at night, the, the flower starts producing nectar. 90% of all of the nectar produced by the agave flower, it, it is, in my local time, it is between 10 o'clock at night and midnight. In those two hours, the flower is producing a lot of nectar. So who is there at that time of night to collect the nectar? It's not the bees, it's not the human birds, it is the bats. So the bats are the natural pollinator of the, of the agave plants. Uh, the specific bats that are the pollinators of the agave are migrant. They come all the way from the Sonora Desert, both in Mexico and in the U.S. part. For them, there's no such a thing as nationality. They don't care if they are American or Mexican. They just don't care. They right. go back and forth, and unfortunately, there's no wall that can stop them. Uh, so in their migration pattern, they fly on top of Jalisco. And by flying on top of Jalisco for years and years, for them it was like flying on top of the ocean. They would look down and they would see blue everywhere, but no food for them. Yeah. So the population was getting reduced and reduced and reduced. And up to five years ago, this specific uh, species of bats was in the list of endangered species, both in the U.S. and in Mexico. So the idea of this project, it was to help both parts, both sides. It was, okay, let's provide the bats with a little bit of food when they are in this area or flying on top of this area. And in exchange of that, let's hope that they will come and at the moment of feeding, they will bring pollen from other agaves, not blue, other species. Because if there's a cross-pollination between two blue agaves who have the same exact genetic information, there's no difference. So we are betting of those bats to be also visiting some wild agaves that are growing in creeks in Jalisco, some coming from those species that I was mentioning before, the blancos, the bermejos, the chatos, all of those that are compatible with the blue agave. And therefore, they could bring a cross-pollination that would eventually also lead to a genetic variation, a genetic difference that could mean in the long run natural resistance introduce natural resistance to the agave plant. So if one day we get this virus or this bacteria attacking and affecting the agaves, at least some of them may survive. And out of those survivors, we can rebuild the whole tequila industry together. So that is kind of the, the goal of the, of the bad friendly project. Uh, it hasn't been very easy because we started the project when the agave was beginning to go on the rise. Mm. Again, with the shortage and, 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 and less and less mature agave available, uh, very high uh, prices, uh, and therefore it has been difficult. Now, what is the future? Again, I mean, maybe we will be convincing as more available, more agave gets available and the price comes down, more people might be interested in being part of that. What happens if nobody is interested? 
I don't care. There will be so much agave that it will be maturing and rotting in the field. And therefore, there you will see, it has happened in the past, you will see forests of quiotes growing, all of them flowering, attracting the bats and bringing genetic difference or genetic diversity into the system again. So it's, it's, it's just give Mother Nature time to do her own job. We are trying to help Mother Nature in difficult times, but then it will come a time that it won't even need our intervention because there will be so much agave getting mature and growing kiosks in the, in the fields and nobody paying attention to them because it will be more expensive to harvest those agaves than to let them rotten that there will be cross-pollination and there will be more, again, genetic resistance in the future just by allowing Mother Nature to do, to do its job. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that'd be kind of cool. I've never heard it described that way as, you know, basically the bats flying over an ocean. Like, that's such a strong visual and it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and you had mentioned the, the quixote and the, the springing of the quixote as well. It's just, an it's just an imaginary idea because, again, remember the bats fly at night, so they don't really see blue down. I know. I'm just saying, but it's like it's it's you know, hey, we gotta. We're all storytellers, right? If if we're in this business, we we gotta tell stories. We gotta convey. And I I have loved this whole experience for myself because getting to talk to, you know, people and the bat conversation is something that I've had multiple times but I've never had anybody describe it in that way. And that's such a romantic way to look at it. And I, you know, cause bats, a lot of people make associations. So you got to find a way to make it prettier, you know? So you well, just pretty the whole bat situation. But also you say on a pretty romantic situation, I would say it's not romantic. It's all about economy. We are trading with the bats. Yeah. There's a bat, there's a bat that approaching a plant that it, is, that it is full of flowers and the bat is thinking food and the plant, the agave plant with the quixote looks at the agave coming and the plant is thinking sex. <laughs> we are trading food for sex. So there's nothing romantic about that. I give you food, you give me sex and we'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. It could be romantic, I guess, even in those you know, crude terms. Uh, but so, so bringing it back to the Quixote, uh, one of the things that, that I've always wondered about, and I've made no progress in finding out the answer to this, at least in Oaxaca, because they just don't understand why I'm curious, which makes sense for a lot of my friends down there. But when the Quixote springs, how, how long is that process before you cut it? Because when you when you see the cuts of a quixote like they're usually pretty thick and then if you do cut it off i mean you know and that's just where you know it's ties to asparagus come out like you have this ginormous asparagus that you can then you know go do whatever with but what does that time mm -hmm. period look like is it like the the quixote starts to spring and then um you know six months later you have to cut it at that point or how how fast is that growth process yeah, actually, the, the, the actual growth of the quixote is very fast because it can grow up to one feet per day. Holy shit. Then after it, but, but after it reaches its, its, its uh, highest peak, yeah. then the process is very slow. It will take weeks 
almost a couple of months to sprout and kind of like a little leaves in that quixote and from those leaves eventually get the flowers and eventually to seed. So from the moment that a quixote starts sprouting, that first is very, very fast yeah. to complete the process and being able to collect some seeds, it takes about six months. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Usually the quixotes in this area would be sprouting usually March, April when we are beginning to have higher temperatures yeah. uh, and usually we are collecting seeds by October, November. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's like, that's always been, um, something I've been curious about, but I've never been able to get an answer. Cause you know, when they do get cut, they're huge. So it's like, how, how did this sneak up on you? I don't understand this. Um, but they grow very fast and then the rest of the process is very slow. Huh. Well, see, and now, and there we go. Now, now we know. Um, so, you had mentioned the distillery earlier and, you know, it has this really long history, all these different things have, you know, have happened with it. But one thing that, that I picked up on as I was kind of going through different articles and stuff like that. And at one point, you know, you have, or at least the last time that it was said was you have about 200 employees at, at the distillery. And, um, which is great. That's like, you know, you know, talking about jobs and stuff like that. But the thing that really stood out to me was a lot of those employees are multi-generational employees, similar to yourself, right? And yes. I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how do you cultivate something like that? That, I mean, it makes sense as the owner that, yeah, you're going to pass it on, you're going to pass it on. But then when you have your employees who also feel the same way, like, go work with this family. I mean, what are the things that go into cultivating that kind of environment where people for generations continue to work on these projects with your family? Okay, I think first of all is, is let's imagine when my grandfather was building the distillery uh, in the 1930s, 1937, a distillery in the middle of nowhere, I mean, not so close to town, and therefore the people that was living in the surrounding, even people that was already working with him at his ranch, it was the only kind of different way or, or, or nature of, of uh, getting a job. So you had to work there. In order to get to the distillery, my grandfather used to go by horse and it would take them a good three hours to get there from Arandas to the distillery. Three hours and it's only seven miles away. But it was three hours by horse. So for the people living in that area, they couldn't very easily come to town to get a job. So the only job they could get, it was actually working in the farms or finally at a distillery. So at that moment, the people from that surrounding started working with him. And eventually it was, as you were mentioning, it was their kids and their grandkids. And we already have people, which is a fourth generation also working there. And there's two things. At that time, I say it was the only source of employment in the area. Now it is very easy to come back and forth from town. But at the same time, we, we usually say, well, uh, we try to, 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 to give our people respect, to treat them well, and therefore to kind of incorporate them into the family. And they, they kind of understand it that way. They become part of the family. We are, as I said, it is an extended family to me. I take care of them, they will take care of me, and, and probably they feel that they are respected and they are well treated and they are not abused. Uh, uh, if I may say so, we are the, the, the distillery in all of this area that we pay the highest, the, the highest salaries. 
because we want our people to make a decent living. In exchange of that, we have the lowest personal rotation ever because they don't want to leave. Nobody wants to leave and not happy with remaining there all of their lives. As soon as possible, they want to bring on board their kids and their grandkids. And another reason why we keep on using a lot of, uh, of people from that area employed, it is, again, what we consider to be a little bit of social sustainability. We are their source of employment. I have uh, 60 people employed on bottling and labeling every single label of whatever we do, labeling everything by hand. Regardless if it's Tapatio, Tesoro, Ocho, Villalobos, you name it, everything, it is done by hand. It would be more efficient and less costly to get a labeler. But if I get a labeler that will do all of that job, what am I going to do with all of that people? Send them home, say thank you. No, as long as they want to be part of this, we want to be part of them. We want to keep on supporting the economy of that area or those families. And to us, it is a way of uh, paying back to them and in exchange of that, they don't want to leave and they want to come uh, with us. So uh, at the end of the day, we become an extended family because they are taking care of us and we try as best as possible to take care of them. Right. Yeah, that's really awesome. I mean, I think that uh, totally checks out. And again, having multiple generations is, is just crazy to me. Um, and so you talked about, you know, some of the different brands that you work with. And when you're, when you have and it's not like a lot of brands, but you know, you have a handful of brands that, that you're working on. Um, they're all great. And you know, when we started, you saw everybody kind of holding up their, their favorite one and, and stuff like that. But when you have stuff coming out of the same distillery, what goes into your thought process? Because they all have different taste profiles. You know, they all are unique and it's, mm -hmm. it's a real testament to like to your talent and stuff, but like, as you're developing these concepts, like what's going into it? Where, you know, do you go and kind of be like, I want it to taste like A, B, and C, or do you just try different processes? What's that process like in developing different brands within the same distillery? Well, I think there are not so many. There's only four brands right now. Again, right. Tapatio, Tesoro, Ocho, and Villalobos. Villalobos is a, such a small quantity. So we have three main brands. Right. And the first one, Tapatio, it is the brand that my grandfather started it with. So it's nothing that I decided how to how to go in the in, in preserving uh, and then I usually say my father's brand, it was El Tesoro. Again, different way of producing. And we do not produce ever two brands at the same time. To me, the brands are like kids. Each one has its own personality and each one deserves to have their own time. You cannot pay attention to all of them at the same time, otherwise you will make a big mess. So give time to each one as you would to one of your kids. So when we are producing, we only produce one brand at a time and each one, each brand has a uniqueness. Uh, for instance, El Tesoro, it is, uh, it is only Tajona. In order to squeeze the juice, we use the Tajona, and then we ferment and distill everything with pulp and fibers. Even first distillation is made with the pulp and fibers, and we bring the distillation to a very lower proof uh, in order not to, to distill. So in terms of efficiency, that is the less efficient 
of all of our brands. It takes more time consuming more human labor, uh, and, and probably that is the reason why it is the most expensive, at least here in Mexico, I don't know, in the U.S. market. Uh, but that is, that is the fingerprint. And then Tapatio, Tapatio originally was only Tajona, and then my father decided to introduce a roller mill uh, about 25 years ago, and then he switched Tapatio to roller mill. In my opinion, when I was able to give my opinion and, and, and to cover that, I said, okay, we don't use that much the Tajona because Tesoro was not such a big brand. Uh, it is growing, fortunately, now, but it was not so big. So for me to, to see the Tajona for months without being used, it was a waste. So I decided to go a step back and started adding some juice from the Tajona into Tapatio fermenting with some pulp, with some fibers, distilling with some pulp and some fibers, not as much as with El Tesoro, but again, going a little bit back on, on, on what the history of the, of the brand was. And, and with Ocho, which I would say, okay, Tapatio was my grandfather's brand, and then Tesoro is my father's, Ocho is my kid, it is my idea, because by dealing with all of these agaves all the time, uh, every time that we were bringing agave from a different field, we knew that we had to fine-tune little things inside the process in order to reach consistency, because they would behave differently in terms of aromas, in terms of flavors, in terms of the, of the chemical compounds that they were forming during fermentation and therefore different distillation in order to get rid of more or less methanol, superior alcohols, uh, fusel oil, aldehydes, name it. So each one was different. So it was all the time trying to balance that. So to reach consistency, we were first of all blending agave from different sources, from different fields, in order to have all kinds of individuals there. And then also in Tapatio and, and in Tesoro, we make blends of tequilas. If it's Blanco, if it's Reposado, if it's Añejo, we blend different batches of production in order to reach that consistency. With Ocho, my idea was, okay, if all the time we have to be switching things, but every field or agave coming from every field behaves differently, why not allow the agave to express itself? And that is why the idea of the Ocho brand, it was okay to kind of determine one particular process. And in order to do that, we, we made up about a dozen different ways of producing tequila inside La Tenia. For using Tajona, not using Tajona, part Tajona, fermenting with, without fibers, distilling only with stainless steel, only with copper, a combination of both, first copper and then stainless, first stainless and then copper, what about the size, the design of the steel, 12 samples, and out of those 12 samples, the number eight was chosen. And that is why the name of the brand, Ocho, because that's what it was. It was the, 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 the number eight sample that we got. And so we were not even thinking about marketing and all of that. It was this. But the idea with, with Ocho, it was to, again, to talk about terroir, to allow the agave express itself depending only on its origin. Mm. Process always the same, no fine tuning. Always the same, just the only difference always will be where the agave is coming from. And therefore, we result having tequilas with vintages which again, 2007, when we had this idea, Tomas Estes, myself, uh, everybody thought it was wild, crazy idea because terroir was for wine. 
Right. But at the still spirit, they say, at the moment you are distilling, you are losing the essence of the plant. And I said, hell no. Maybe that happens with grains. Maybe that would happen if you're distilling brandy with the, with the grapes. Because the good grapes will be selected for wine and only the ones that are not so great will be blended in the mix to make brandy. But with the agave, I used to say, the agave is not like other plants. It, it's a, it behaves unique. As I said, during the day is dormant, during the night is breathing. So only with that, you see it's a different plant. And then it doesn't have a short cycle of growth. It takes seven, eight years to grow and mature. So imagine that plant, as I said, with the leaves up, open arms to the sun to absorb the energy, to absorb all of its surroundings. What happens if next to that agave field, you have a field of citrus trees or mango trees or you have cattle uh, close by, all of those different aromas that will be kind of dancing in the air will be affecting the plant. What about the fertility of the soil? What about the, 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 the orientation of the field? If it's oriented north or south and where the lines are going, how much sunlight they are getting into every daily basis. Now, multiply that daily basis for seven, eight years, it gets affected. So the, the, the challenge here was to prove that it was right. And even if nobody believed that, I said, it is happening and we will prove it. And that was why Ocho was, was born at the beginning, very difficult because we were talking about terroir and the people would say, okay, ah, I like your tequila. What can I compare it to, to see this thing about terroir? And there was no other tequila. So we had to wait two, three years until we finally were able to put let's say three or four ocho blancos in front of a person and saying all of these are the same brand all of those are blancos they were all produced exactly the same now try them and people say oh they're so so different that's what we're talking about that is terror that is the influence of the agave depending on where the agave is coming so again each brand has has its own reason to be they will have one fingerprint again as members of a family. Each one has its character. It's like having, I have three daughters. So this, let's assume these three brands are like my three daughters. They all have the DNA of the family, but at the same time, they are all unique. Each one will have their own character and their own reason to be. And therefore, that is how I can explain how the different brands, different processes, different philosophy, different ways of doing things in order to get different results. With just one fingerprint, one common thing, quality. That is the only thing that is non-questionable. For Ocho, there's no consistency. Well, yes and no. Exactly. If you're thinking consistency of aromas and flavors, surprise, each vintage, each field will be different. So, no. Consistency in that direction, no. But they are very consistent. They have a very consistently high quality. To me, that is consistency. Do not compromise the quality of what you are doing. That is the consistency. It's not in terms of aromas. It's in terms of quality. Because this tequila is, again, is, is to show terroir to show they are different, not to show they are all exactly the same. That's really awesome. Oh, I, I extended talking, but I get, I get the passion about it. <laughs> no, this is, this is great. This is exactly, 
this is exactly what what I hope to achieve with any one of these conversations. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what, there's most of the people are not tuning in to hear me talk. So um, it's perfect to have to have you take control of the conversation. Um, and, and one of the things that you're, you know, you're talking about and your family has always done has been that commitment to having 100% agave tequila and no additives or anything like that. And I, th I think one of the crazy things to consider with that is like, you know, you're one of the main reasons that that's kind of the standard now. Because uh, it wasn't for the longest time. Most people were doing mixtos. They were they were adding all kinds of fun stuff in, or bad stuff. And um, you know, you actually went to the U.S. government and helped get uh, the 100% agave recognized to the point where it wasn't facing the same taxes as the other stuff. And that was back in that was back in 1990. I mean, like again, you're you're coming into this industry. You're really just a plant nerd. What's it like going to a foreign government and kind of being like, hey, guys, recognize my stuff, please? What is that experience like for you? Well, first of all, I am wondering what your sources of information are, because I see that you are kind of well informed. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> Thank you. It is kind of simple and kind of complex at the same time. As you mentioned, back in those days, there was basically three, maybe four tequila producers that were producing 100% agave tequila at that time. One of those that for years also shut down their distillery and they were not producing, but it was Chinaco from Tamaulipas. Here in Jalisco, kind of the, the, the three, let's say, champions of 100% agave, it was, and of course, by size, Guillermo Romo from Herradura was one of those. And he had these two little guys next to him that it was Tapatio and it was Siete Leguas. And at that time, all of the bull tequila, the mixture that you can export in, 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 in tankers into the U.S. was exempt of taxes. 100% agave tequila had a very high tax, had, had to pay tax. It was not exempt, had to pay tax. And actually, the highest tax of all spirits. We were paying more taxes than scotch whiskey, than cognac from France. We were paying the highest. So... We kind of decided that it was time to go to Washington to make lobbying uh, and, and with one word that was the key at that moment, that the, the key word was discrimination. This tequila coming in bulk with lower quality can come to the U.S. without paying any taxes. And we, producers that are doing our best to bring to your market quality, we are discriminated and we are enforced to pay the highest taxes of all spirits industry into the U.S. And therefore, fortunately, uh, I think that we won that battle and, and eventually we were able to have the same treatment as, as the Bull Tequila. It was a nice, nice experience. I mean, I was, I was young and being young, being able to, to, to go visit the White House and the Congress of the U.S. and I had the chance to sit in the chair of the president of the U.S. in the Congress. That kind of experiences were, wow, okay, unbelievable, unbelievable. But, but, but the goal, it was to avoid that discrimination, to be treated with same, no better, but at least same, that what we consider that they were lower quality tequilas. And, and, and finally, uh, we were able to do it. That's cool. That's very cool. 
And, but I'm yeah. wondering about your sources of information. <laughs> that is not that public. Because, uh, because after we won that, the Tequila Chamber uh, kind of took the flag and said, oh, we did that. Well, the, it was not them. It was these three companies together with uh, Jesus Lopez Roman from San Matias also joined yeah. the team. And it was, it was a small group of us paying all of the lawyers in the U.S. and doing all of the job and going to the lobby segments and to the hearings in the U.S. trying to expose in front of the government why we deserve to be treated differently. And then somebody else said, oh, we did it. And it was the big company saying, oh, we did it. I said, you did it. We don't care, okay? You can say you did it. We don't care about being recognized for doing it. We just wanted to be treated with respect. And, and, and we, we earned that respect. Well, um, I, I got to tell you, you know, after doing this for a few months, I've gotten pretty good at researching. I can't give you all my sources, but, you know, I, I, I do pride myself on finding some good questions. And I think everybody, at least on this call now, will for sure move forward championing, you know, you and the rest of the guys as the real heroes of the 100% uh, agave. Um, so in, in, the, in the film Agave Spirit of a Nation, which was amazing, by the way. If anybody hasn't seen that, I'm sure you have, but watch it again. Um, I have. Dur dur during, that, during that movie, or you know, during that time that they were with you guys, you actually had some flooding at the distillery. And mm -hmm. I mean, it made for great drama, but obviously really sucked at the time. But you had mentioned that you had had multiple floods over the past few years, whereas in the previous hundred years, there was like one. And it was kind of attributed to global warming and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm curious, is there, has that trend continued since, since that documentary was made? And has there been any other repercussions that you've started to notice? Again, you know, being in the fields your entire life that you've started to notice as a result of global warming? Well, two things. Actually, we have had only two floods, and those two floods have been in the last 15 years. So during the first 70 years of, of the company, there was never a flood okay. there. Okay. Uh, and, and, but also, I could tell you that 1997, we had snow in this area for the first time in 130 years and different things. But, uh, but uh, in the last years, we saw more and more, uh, I would say, bigger storms. And then we got flooded one time. And then I started building next to the distillery kind of ways to, to move the water away before affecting the distillery. And then again, we had another huge storm that we got flooded. And that was the day that these guys were there. Uh, they used to come. And, and as you saw, even at sunrise, they were already inside my house and, and uh, looking at me feeding my deer and, and whatever it was. And that day, I, I mean, we had this problem, we had the flood, they get to the distillery, I was so nervous, and then they were trying to mic me. And I said, please, get the hell out of here. Move away. <laughs> you don't want to mic me because now I, I'm, in a very, I'm very nervous, I'm not in a good mood, and I may say things that you don't want to hear. So no mic, and only these areas you can film. I don't want you to film everything because there was mud everywhere. I said, this, is, this might be a very bad image if the people see the, the distillery full of mud, even if we 
were cleaning and washing and sterilizing everything and all that, but it was not a good image. So I said, do not even dare to mic me and do not do this. Uh, but again, so what we were enforced after that second one is that I have taken more extra precautions in order to kind of, of, of uh, avoid this from happening again. There's a chance and every year we, we know we have this chance because the climate is different. And in the fields, I have noticed that too. When I was a kid, the average for the agave to grow and reach maturity, it was in between eight and 10 years. And then the norm was seven to eight years. Nowadays, two things. One is we are trying to use uh, better ejuelos and better material. We are using more fertilizers and, or, or uh, attending better the plants. So now the norm, the, the, the regulation is that at six years of planting, and agave in the fields is already mature. So, but we have been shortening the cycle. Part is because of that attention that we are giving the agave, but also we are noticing the agave to reach maturity faster. Why is that? Because every year we have less colder winters. We have warmer winters. So in winter, the plant do not get dormant. The plant keeps on working, keeps on living, and therefore it will reach physiological maturity faster. Faster means that sometimes there's not enough time to get all of the nutrients and all of the food from the field, from the soil, from the land. And therefore, the agave is reaching maturity faster, but now we see agaves way smaller than what they used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. So the agave, uh, again, matures faster, but now smaller and smaller piñas because we are enforcing the plant to reach maturity no matter what. And we are not giving the time or giving the plant the time that, that it would need for naturally doing that, but also gets affected by the global warming. So it is a combination of factors. It's not only one, but all of this combination has the actual result that we have with agaves. I have had agaves that are sprouting the Kyoto in the field when they are three years of being planted. Wow. And I never saw anything like that when I was a kid, ever. Now the plants are getting mature very, very fast and the piñas are very small, but the kyot is already sprouting and the plant reaching maturity, even at three. I mean, the, again, the average is six, but I have a mature agaves at three, at four, at five, and at six years. Not eight or nine or 10 as it used to be when I was a kid. And yeah. that is, again, you thought that I was very old and I was able to taste the different tequilas produced with different agaves in the 1940s without being that much. But I can tell you that it was different when I was a kid. That was, uh, let's say, 40, 45 years ago. Let's not go that way back. <laughs> Maybe you will tell me as a writer told me when, when uh, a writer was, was, uh, wanted to interview me for, uh, for uh, uh, an article when La Teña was about to get to its 70th anniversary. So he was interviewing me, we had the interview and all of that. Something was not very clear for him, I guess, because of the article, it's a, it started saying, well, Carlos is about to be 70 years old and for his age, he doesn't look that old. I said, damn, 70 years is the distillery, <laughs> not me. I mean, I was 45 years old at that time, and he was saying, oh, for his 70 years, Carlos doesn't look that old. 
say, yeah, it's the alcohol in me. Alcohol preserves everything. So I drink my good portion <laughs> of alcohol and I am very well preserved. And now you are doing almost the same to me. Well, you know, if, if I'm going to get, you know, my chops busted by anybody, if I'm going to have some ongoing joke for the foreseeable future, at least it's from you. So, you know, I'll, I, I can live with that. Now we have that special connection. I think you're old, you know, you're not, that's just how it goes. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so kind of having that foresight and seeing these different things that are going on, that the way that you saw the foresight with the bats and everything, is there something and maybe it is the climate change, but is there anything that you feel the agave industry, not just the producers, but the people who are consuming it, you know, your champions of these different brands and spirits that we should be paying attention to that nobody seems to be talking about? Is there anything that you can think of right now that is that? Uh, no, I mean, if I may think of something is, is well. Again, I love all of the agaves and therefore I love all the spirits coming from an agave plant, uh, regardless if it's tequila, if it's raicilla, if it's uh, sotol, if it's mezcal, uh, if it's uh, lechuguilla, if it's agave spirit, as long as they are well made with fully mature agaves and respecting the process. So I usually, if I had to say something, is it is time to be transparent. The people has to to kind of see what they're drinking. I usually tell the people, well, drink less, but drink wiser. Mm -hmm. Right now you have all of the information that you want at your fingertips. So it is so easy to get informed in order to have a, a, a good decision to see what you are going to drink, what the processes are, what is the reputation of the distillery, what are they using, for them, how sustainable they are, what are they using with all of their, their also their, their residues and all that. It's so simple that you can get all of that information very easily and then make a decision. That is what I wish that everybody would know. I know that there is people and it's growing, the group of people that gets more and more conscious about it. Unfortunately, it is not the common market yet. So that is what I would like to see. More information for the consumer, but at the same time, a consumer more well informed of what everybody's doing so they can make a wiser decision and not just to guide themselves by a nice marketing or by a fancy face or a pretty face or a fancy name. It is, right. it is what is actually inside the world that you are willing to drink. What are you bringing into your body? You're not bringing into your body uh, this lady's face or this guy's name or, or you don't want to bring uh, some bad process or bad agaves or bad practices so it's just inform a little bit yourself and make a good decision right that's Simple. great that's great uh all right so i just have a few more questions for you and these are a little bit more rapid fire and then what we'll do is we'll open it up to everybody else so if you guys like have questions start getting them ready in your head and and stuff like that but these will be a little bit more rapid fire uh Favorite activity to do that has nothing to do with agave? Gardening. Okay, I'll, I'll let that one slide. Is it true that you have swam in a fermentation vat? Uh, nope. Okay. Never. Uh, if you're not drinking tequila, what are you drinking? Uh, coffee. Okay. Uh, biggest myth in tequila history? Uh, the agave has a worm. Okay. And my final question, eventually 
when you write your memoir, what is the name of your book? Uh, I haven't thought about it, but I would say, uh, well, I think there's a tequila sueños now, so probably it would be tequila madness. <laughs> <laughs> tequila madness. Awesome. And I will tell some stories on when the meetings at the tequila chamber were kind of all of the conversations were supported by a gun in front of you and things like that. That would be a good, good reading. Yeah. I think that would and be... It happened. And it happened. That's for sure. I, I witnessed one of those. I believe it. I, I, think, I think a lot of people would be interested in, in reading more. Uh, all right. So everybody, I'm going to open it up to you. You can either unmute yourself and you can ask uh, Carlos a question, or if you want, you can type it into the group chat. Um, does anybody have any questions? Uh, John. I just want to say hi. I joined a little bit late, but saludos, Carlos. <laughs> I was <laughs> so good to hear all the stories. I don't want to just and of course Luis had to make it about himself like <laughs> usual <laughs> I just want to say hi oh, I appreciate you man uh, tarde, thank you sueño. ¿Qué pasó? Tarde, pero sin sueño. Sí. <laughs> uh, and then so Catherine asks and she's new to tequila is it aged yes Catherine tequila can be aged so I'll send you a little summary on that uh do we have any other questions so what are we going to see moving forward for ocho more single barrels more well we keep on expanding a little bit the, the single barrels uh, recently right. we had a, a, a nice collaboration also with uh, with alexander gabriel from uh, ferran cognac and plantation rum uh, so we had a, a, a three añejos we had in the market, three añejos that were finished, two in, in, in rum barrels, one in, in cognac barrel, and also from rum barrels coming from different islands in order to have also different terroirs. So we had, in the market right now, it was only Barbados and Jamaica, and they were cast finished only three months after being an añejo. Right. And, uh, and then as we had other barrels also from Alexander, I mean from Fiji, from Panama, from Barbados, uh, we started aging tequila, but aging for the whole time for at least one year in those barrels. And very oh, cool. recently, uh, we pulled the tequila from those barrels. It was four barrels of cognac, three barrels of rum, but we wanted to do a little bit different. What happens if we use tequila in a blend aged in both rum and cognac barrels. So I submitted uh, all of the samples of those barrels to Alexander Gabriel, that was the collaboration. Right. So he would, he would come up with, a, with a, a blend that we could use. And unfortunately, it was a very difficult decision, so he came up with three different blends. <laughs> so in the future, we are seeing now three añejos, not finished, but completely aged in those uh, rum and cognac barrels in three different blends that were blended by Alexander Gabriel in this collaboration that that we have. So that is the, the that is kind of the, the the fun things that we are still doing with Ocho. Seeing what else can we can we do and what other material and what what can we work with. 
So, so, so one other, if I may, since we were talking about other agave earlier, then how, how is the curado, the current ones that are done with the espadine nectar and the, how, how, how are those legal? <laughs> Let's put it that way. That's a good question. And that was another, another kind of crazy idea. Uh, Probably, especially you, Drew, if you, if you were kind of making investigation, probably you already know, all of you, uh, what my opinion is about the crystallinos. So mm -hmm. do not expect me to ever have a crystallino. Uh, and, and I like to do exactly the opposite. I said, okay, I don't want to take from my consumer, charging my consumer more money to give them less. I want sure. to give them more. So I said, okay, how can I give them more agave? Well, what happens if I add a little bit and exactly the opposite of a Cristalino, now I have Blanco tequilas in the market that are not crystal clear, that have a lot of color, are darker than some Añejos, but it is a natural color coming from an infusion. So we started infusing only blue agave in Blanco tequila, because I said, I don't want to give my people less. I want to give them more agave. How can I give more agave flavor? Well, like making a tea, let's infuse this. In mezcal, they have pechuga, which is also distilled, the, the tequila distilled with some chicken breast in order to collect some of that. And then you have uh, curado actually was very common for pulque. You have the natural pulque and then you have the pulques curados. That's why the name curado, the apio, the, the manzana, I mean different pairs. And it was an infusion in pulque, so we decided to make an infusion with this. And then the next step, the crazy idea, it was, could we use another agave spirit for this? I said, yeah, I think I can. So I had to go with the CRT and say, hey, you know what? I want to infuse other agave species into my tequila. And of course, the, the reaction of CRT was, no, 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 you can't. It's illegal. You cannot bring other agave to your distillery and use it in the process. I said, Wait a minute, I'm not talking about the process. Can I infuse jalapeno peppers on my tequila? Well, yes, you can. Can I infuse tobacco in my tequila? Yes. Why cannot I infuse another agave in my tequila? Well, because the losses that you cannot use. So again, that is for the process. So if I already have a Blanco tequila that was Certified, certified by you, it was made under your regulations, it is already outside the distillery in a different warehouse. I bring some cooked agave, it will never set feet inside the distillery. So not to be confused. I have a tank and then I can bring another raw material and infuse it there. Can I do it? They said, well, as the law is, we don't see why not. I said, give it to me by written because I don't want one of your guys coming someday at the at Laltenia saying, oh, you have this agave which is not blue, so we will punish you. No, give it to me by reason that I can use it. There's nothing in the law that prevents me from doing it. Therefore, it is legal to do it. If it's not forbidden, it is permitted. So I came to this part. And the, other, the other idea with this, it was, again, there are some wild species of agave that are used for, for producing mainly mezcal right. in Oaxaca that probably they are even at risk of, of, uh, of uh, disappearing 
because the people is harvesting all of the wild agaves, specifically the species that takes 20, 25, 30 years to grow and mature, the tepestates, the madre quiches, the, some of those. Said, what happens if what the people is attracted for is for, by the flavor? What happens if I can give you a little bit of that flavor, but using a small fraction of that agave? Because I will just infuse a little bit of that so you will have a very good quality tequila with just some hints, some elements of those. And, and, and some people, is, it is surprised when they taste. We already have done only two, one with Espadin uh, from Guerrero and one with Cupreata from Michoacan. Uh, and the people is, is saying, wow, they, they taste almost like a, like a mezcal. I said, yeah, well, not that much or not that smoky, not, not that much flavor from mezcal. It is a combination, but again, it is kind of a different, different view, but it is still blanco, even if it has a lot of color. So I don't want to give my consumer less for their money as a Cristalino would do. I want <laughs> more. How can I give you more agave? And I remember even asking the guy from the CRT, hey, can I put in the label 108% agave? <laughs> oh, right. Well, NBA came because of Ocho, of course. I said, well, it was already certified that it was 100% agave. And then I am adding more agave. So it's more than 100%. It's about 100%. What <laughs> was funny is that this guy had to think about it for about 15 seconds before he told me, hey, wait a minute. We're talking about percentages. It cannot be over 100. <laughs> oh, damn. Okay, that's fine. We will leave it on 100% agave. But it was already 100 and I added more. <laughs> so, so the bottom line is if it's a, already a, a produced certified tequila. Absolutely. Then, then everything is legit here. Absolutely. Yeah. In writing. He's got one here. Cool. Because <laughs> this is this is the original here, the original curado here. So, yeah. Oh, huh. wow! That's a really cool bottle. I want that. <laughs> I want it too. <laughs> you know what an alebrije is? Yep. Yeah. We've all seen Coco now. It is a mythical animal that couldn't exist. So therefore, in this case, it was a jaguar with, a, with, a, with eagle wings. So right. it exist. According to the law, tequila couldn't use any other agave. So I am using, as you can see here, espadin. That's brilliant. <laughs> it is a mythical animal. According to the law, it couldn't exist. Tequila could never use any espadin. Well, I'm proving you wrong because it is, and it is tequila, as you can see here, tequila blanco. Uh -huh. And it has the OM number certified by the CRT and all that, but it is just infused. Much love for you, Senor. Infusion with espadin agave. Carlos, what markets is it in right now? Huh? What markets and what 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 markets is curado in? Like where what can you market? buy it? Yeah. Uh, mainly in Spain, a little bit in UK, and I think one or two places in in California, and I think that's it. 
but mainly is is Europe yet it mainly is, is in Spain so another kind of crazy idea do not give your consumer less give them more Uh, does anybody else have any questions for Carlos while we have him? Great job, dude. That was a great interview. I got towards the end of it, but. Hey, I'll, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, Carlos, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I got to tell you, when uh, you responded to my Facebook message that you would be interested in doing this, I definitely fangirled pretty hard and was blown away that you would take this time to, to speak with me and then, you know, with the group. So, um, you know, thank you for everything that you've done for, for this industry and everything that you will continue to do. Um, it's, this was, this was really great. Uh, you know, this is an industry that I've really fallen in love with, you know, during my career and, People like you are a big reason for that. So, so again, thank you for, for taking the time uh, tonight. That was, that was really great. Um, and then thank I just want, of course, of course, we can, we can yeah, talk about how, yeah, well, we can talk about how old you are anytime. You just give me a call and we'll, we'll do it. And, and after that night, you are blaming me. So I am responsible. Oh, you are guilty because I, it's because of you. Yes, of course. And now everybody's blaming me. And it will, if some people get at home a little late night and they have been drinking a little more than they should, they, they will blame me. Oh, it was Carlos. Why? I couldn't stop drinking. So it is my fault. I'm, I'm no problem. There's, Just there's water up. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I Muchas hope gracias, I Carlos. And uh, looking forward this to be over soon, so we can meet in person in Aranda, so we can keep uh, continue this conversation, but with a nice tequila in front of us, but being able to say salud, uh, not only face to face, but actually in person. Absolutely. So, salud. Thank you. Take care and. See you soon. All right. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks, Drew. Cheers. Adios, Carlos. Gracias.